follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk every week about the transformations that can come from loss. I hope you'll go to the Good Grief host page at Voice America to communicate with me in your favorite way, by email, through Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. All those links are on my host page at the station. I'd love to hear your feedback, who you'd like me to have on the show, and what your experience with transformation through loss is. Today I'm here with Julie Bond Genovese. Julie is an inspirational speaker, workshop leader, artist, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Nothing Short of Joy, which is fantastic. And that's endorsed by Wayne Dyer, Dr. Christian Northrup, and Dr. Bernie Siegel. She's been featured on television and radio across the country, including NBCLX, Anderson Cooper Live, My Fox Boston, and Oprah.com with Gail King. Being born a dwarf with degenerative arthritis was not the curse that Julie originally believed. It turned into magic. After desperate years of humiliation and shame, medical studies and operations, including two brain surgeries, Julie realized that joy wasn't dependent on circumstance, but on her response. Human trials came with a heavenly purpose, the growth and glory of remembering the love we were born forgetting. Julie mentors others on how to use empowered self-expression to transform life's grief into gratitude and troubles into triumph. Welcome, Julie. Thank you, Cheryl. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to be here with you. (laughs) I was so moved by your book. Thank you. I was moved by your comments about my book. (laughs) (laughs) And... One thing that really stuck out is that you didn't shrink from describing the whole grief process Mm. from start to finish, from young to now. You didn't skip to the end. Was it (laughs) hard to write for you? It was, but at the same time, it was the most cathartic thing I'd ever done. And I'd been through therapy, and I'd done lots of workshops and read lots of books, but actually getting into the feeling work of it and acknowledging my humanness and and my similarities to other people, um, that journey was, was so healing that the writing of it, although it was incredibly emotional, it was this rite of passage that was so important, and 
as I shared it and knew that it would be, it would find its way to other people, there was a part of me that felt guilty that I would be dragging others into my emotions. But then the higher part of me believed that tapping into our emotions is so powerfully transformational. It is so healing that it's, it, you can't skip that step. Just like you say, if we try and plug it up and deny it and ignore it and cast it aside, it just shows up around us in other people and circumstances in pain that feels like it's outside us, but it's actually inside just wanting to be acknowledged, just wanting to be heard. Yes. And I, I, there's, a, there's a kind of paradox I just realized, which is that part of the injury was having all that going on inside mm-hmm. and not having anyone hear it, not have, having anyone register you. So in some way, I can imagine the book helped you to feel heard. Would that oh, be fair to yes. say? Yes. And I think most of us desperately want to be seen and known for who we really are, but we're given mixed messages as kids about what's acceptable. (laughs) And there's some point in our life where it's just not safe to be who we are. And I shut down pretty early on because I didn't know what is safe to express. I'm getting negative feedback because of my dwarfism, and I didn't understand that there was a difference between how I looked and my image, and who I really was. But no one was saying that. No one was was applauding that. Um, and so for me, the confusion of, well, who who am I? So who do I want to be seen and heard? I didn't want my body seen, but to know our true self is acceptable, of course, is an incredibly important part of our maturity to be okay with, with really all of it, you know, the, the not-so-pretty and, and our best side that, that we don't necessarily show right away because we're not comfortable with it. Or I was so busy judging everything I did and everything. I had a running list of what was wrong with my body, and that was sort of what, what came first in my mind was how I looked. And it took me years to realize I'm not... I am more than my physical self. I'm more than my career. I'm more than what I do. There's the spirit inside. It was trying to come out and express itself, and eventually the book was what really catapulted me forward, sometimes in an uncomfortable way to be exposed, but in a way that's really healing and, and really universal. Yes. I heard a, I heard a interview with a poet re- recently where he said, when you're writing, you have to be very specific and connect with the universal. Mm. And I'm thinking of that now because although most people don't have your same experience, mm. I'm, I'm guessing they resonated with that sense of bad things happening as a child and, mm-hmm. and you kind of think it's you. And, um, so how do people respond to that? Um, you know, when they hear you talking about that, because it was certainly familiar to me, although I have no um, similar experiences. Right. Some bullying, but, you know, no similar, similar physical experiences. Right, but it really, it's really true what that author is saying about 
what is very personal to us is actually universal. It's not mm-hmm. the circumstance. It's not my physical body or the arthritis or the surgeries. It's the feelings that come before them, after them, in the midst of them. That is incredibly universal. And so when people have heard me on stage and they've maybe never met a little person or they have preconceived notion about what that is, because in the media it's often, you know, the Oompa Loompa or the Munchkin, and we're kind of turned into characters instead of real people. So when someone hears me talking and they feel their heart open and relate, and they think, well, this is odd, because I've never been through (laughs) any of that, but I get it. I know what she's talking about, because as soon as you're real, and you're human, and you're flawed, and you're fabulous at all the same time, someone else goes, oh, yeah, that's me, too. That's me out there. I've been there as well. Yes. And there's nothing more healing than that, because so many of us feel and spend a lot of our lives feeling alone, feeling like it's only me, when really, no matter what, no matter what the loss, no matter what the tragedy or what the the worry and fear, there's a whole bunch of people who have felt it and gone through it and made it through to the other side. Yes. One other thing that just really um, leapt out at me while I was reading your book is the way that in one way, you were locked in shame and self-criticism and that, you know, that human um, tragedy of what we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and yet you kept moving. There was also a sense of motion that you wanted something so much that you kept trying to find it, even though this other thing might have told you to stop. Uh, you didn't give up. Right. And I wonder what you think helped you to keep going in that way. Yeah, that it's still in some ways remarkable to me. And when, like the other day, I'm at the skating rink with my sons, and I, the kids that we go with, um, none of them have done much skating now. This is maybe our third time. The first time they all got out on the ice with these little blades on this super slick material, and they are all, they're falling, they're knocking heads, they're hitting their butt, and they just keep getting back up. And watching this going, they are so brave. And every time they'd come by the door where I was, I'd be like, you're really great. Oh, my gosh, you're amazing. Because my heart just felt like, oh, oh, ouch. Every time they'd hit the wall or hit each other. And sometimes they would hold hands to try and help each other. And it was just really affirming that there is a natural part of us, all of us, no matter how much life has beaten us down, that will keep trying, that wants so much to know that our highest self, that our soul always keeps calling us forward, no matter what, no matter how badly we've been burned and how many times we've been abandoned or denied or put down. And I think that's what kept calling me, I, this desire to know and understand there was something better to me, and I, I could feel it out in front, maybe deep inside. Life was not reflecting it back to me yet, because I didn't believe in it. So yeah. I didn't necessarily see it as a tangible thing, and, and which is partly why my book was such a sort of this constant yearning, 
because it's like a carrot dangling in front of me. I thought it was out in the world that I would find what I was looking for, you know, my partner, yes. my beloved, my money, my whatever. And, and slowly I realized it was just waiting for me. It was within me. It was who we are born to be. It's who we know as little children. It's the fun and the joy. That is waiting. And it, it doesn't, doesn't die just because we have these horrible losses or we're suffering. It stays and it remains and it and it it keeps calling us. And I think that's what kept me going. Um, every time I got knocked down, still today when I feel knocked down, um, that little voice just says, "Just dust off one more time. Uh-huh. It's worth it." You know. Yes, I'd love to have you read a little bit out of the book because um, this this section about the bookstore s- spoke yeah. to that being there, even though a, a, a something in your mind was saying, don't go there, don't do that. <laughs> you still couldn't help it in a way. I'd love it if you'd read that and say whatever you'd like to say about it. Yeah, this was, um, I was in seventh grade, and it was the first year I think we were allowed to choose electives, you know, choose our own class, and there was one called behavioral science, and I remember asking a friend, what is that? And she said, oh, I think it's like why people do what they do. And I thought, oh my gosh, I completely want to know. Why <laughs> do people tease me when they don't know me? I've, I haven't hurt them. You know, this really was a big part of my life at that point. I'd been bullied, and I didn't know why. I knew I was different, but there was another part of me that didn't understand how could they really treat me like that. So this class of behavioral science had a textbook, and although the textbook was incredibly boring, I thought <laughs> I put two and two together and said, there must be other books about this. Ah, and voila. so when my, my friends and I went to the mall, and I sort of slipped away, and um, so here's the excerpt from, from my book. In the psychology section, I found a paperback titled The Truth. I flipped through it, my eyes desperate for some balmy relief. The author wrote that anger was actually a cover-up for fear. Huh? He said that when someone makes us mad, they're triggering a feeling of powerlessness that's already inside. They're not creating the emotion, they're unleashing it. Really? No one had the power to offend, he wrote, unless we allowed it to echo our own self-doubt. No matter what our circumstances, we can find peace within. No way. Could this inner stillness fend off the burning stares and laughter? Could it douse the growing rage inside me? The possibility was a thrill. Or was it social suicide to admit that I was messed up on the inside as well as the outside? Seventh grade was not an acceptable time for radical individualism. We worked tirelessly to be alike. Standing in the bookstore, I worried that someone had noticed the revolutionary writings in my hand. Will the cashier think I'm crazy? So I bought a boring teen novel to camouflage the truth and distract my friends. As it turned out, they thought it was hysterical that I'd bought books at all, and they didn't care to look. But I couldn't wait to get home and break out my manual for happiness. I was ready to transform my life of worry into one of peace. And although the book was helpful, I was afraid to share the revelations, and after a few weeks, they were quickly overshadowed. When it was the truth versus puberty, truth didn't stand a chance. 
<laughs> I love the ending of that. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yep. All of the, what I learned in that book sort of went underground for many years. But when I found self-help books many years later in my 20s, it came back to me that I had found this book long ago. I'd been very moved by it and really resonated. I remember I made a lot of associations with what was going on in my family and, and how our own lack of communication was part of the issue. Um, all of that had been there, just kind of mm-hmm. you know, hanging and waiting for me to be ready again to realize Under the that. dirt in seed form, huh? Yeah, it was it was the seed that was planted. Of course, when I first remembered, I kind of beat myself up. I said, why did I forget all that? Why did I leave it behind? But I think it's part of the learning. It's part of the path that sometimes we sink into the dark places so that later we recognize that we chose some of the some of the suffering because we just weren't willing yet to take on that that own empowerment, that For ability sure. to, to lift ourselves out. That's a great a great spot to go into a break. And after the break, I'd like to hear more about those early traumas, how they formed you. You know, um, what was catalyzing this this descent that you came out of mm. and and listeners out there in the few minutes you can go to good grief homepage at voice america like us on facebook follow us on twitter connect on linkedin i'd really really love to hear from you tell me your stories make suggestions and to reach julie bon genovese go to her website www.nothingshortofjoy.com we'll be right back Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Holy hormones, honey. Every week, this groundbreaking radio show brings you insight about hormone fluctuations, addressing the core biological issues that cause mood disorders, and offers a general support center for women everywhere at any stage in their lives. Host Leslie Carol Botha has the passion and drive to help you make informed decisions about your well-being and reclaim your life. Holy Hormones, Honey, sponsored by True Hope Incorporated, the leaders in brain health, is broadcast live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your health is your greatest gift. So what decisions are you making to support your health and well-being today? Your overall state of health is a reflection of the habits you create in your daily life. Do you know what it takes to live a truly preventative lifestyle? Listen for Reclaim Your Health with host Dr. Maggie Luther. We'll show you how to add health into your life every day to prevent chronic disease. What's more, we'll help you optimize your health and live a more fulfilled life. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. How is your health? Do you want to know more about it? Every day there are new technologies, procedures, and healing techniques coming forward. To understand them, tune in to Speaking of Health with Dr. Michael Cudlis. Our guests come from different backgrounds in the fields of health and healing. We'll discuss new realities and modalities, from chiropractic to metagenics. It's all designed to improve your quality of life. 
Speaking of Health is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. That's got two G's. To connect with me in your favorite way. Today, Julie Bon Genovese and I are talking about how she transformed her shame, which came out of childhood medical and bullying trauma, into joy. So, so Julie, let's talk about some of the things that happened to you as a result of your medical conditions. Um, uh. Maybe, maybe even we should start with um, the hospital passage from your book to give people a sense, a sense of that. I think, oh, right? sure. Yeah, my, my condition is called spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia, and it's pretty rare. It's one in 100,000 babies are born with it. It's a type of dwarfism, and there are actually over 200 types. So mine, um, and any dwarfism, was a real, like, um, excitement in a way for doctors and, and an interest because there was, they wanted to study what they had never seen before. And um, unfortunately, that led to a lot of trauma for me because the way the medical world is taught to be very objective and in some ways cold to the, the clinical specimen before them, and little did they know that I'd already been feeling alone and disregarded and separate, and, and it was sort of reinforced by these men in white coats, these gods of medicine speaking in Latin and with very negative overtones. So, so this um, passage is when my parents brought me to the Center for Birth Defects, and this is where they studied what was going on. It was an attempt to head off any problems. There was also a positive side to it. The negative side was there was not really any addressing of the emotional issues. So um, I was brought to a room and um, for a lot of residents, I believe they must have been residents. I was only nine at the time, nine or ten. And so my doctor was explaining to the residents my condition. Mm. I stood alone in the front of the room as one of them approached. Hello, Julie. I'm Dr. Simon. I recognized his Vulcan eyebrows from the year before, but I said nothing. I didn't want them to know how terrified I was. Dr. Simon turned away from me and began to address the group. One in 100,000 births are affected yearly by spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia, a congenital defect. Here we see the proportionate short-statured SCD with short trunk and proportionate limbs. Dr. Simon asked me to turn sideways and raise my arms. Note the curvature of the spine and pelvic abnormalities. He paused for a second and then looked me in the eyes. Would you mind standing up on this table? We just want everyone to be able to see your pretty face. On the inside, I was screaming, no. But a yes flew off my tongue. Even though I hated them, I wanted to be good. 
I was taught to be good, even for the white coats. Someone grabbed me under my armpits and lifted me up into the air on display. Dr. Simon continued, his strange words pressing into my ears as another doctor moved my limbs, turning and twisting them, bending and straightening. His hollow voice magnified my flaws. Clipboards bobbed, face after face examined me, nodding as they scribbled notes and measurements. They looked so intently, but no one saw. The exhibition continued as I drifted away, desperate to drown out the labels that were anchoring inside, defect, abnormal, deformed, dysplasia, dwarfism. Would you mind bending forward for me, Julie? I obeyed as he continued. Note the decreased range of motion of the lumbar spine, narrowed disc spaces, limited flexibility in neck, decreased range of hip rotation, and degenerative changes in the hips and misaligned knees. We just want to look at your pretty face. When they were done with me, I was brought back to my parents, a lost wallet whose contents had been impersonally scanned. My ID, though, had been left behind. And for years, I never even knew it was missing. Oh, that that just touches me so much. And, mm. yeah, that, and I went on believing, you know, that I was this impossible, I had and needed impossible repairs. And, and it was just a done deal. I guess my, my experience from the doctors and from life at that point told me that what's done is done and there's no healing it. There's no cure for this. There's no changing it. And I found the exact opposite as I got older, thank goodness. But at that time, I felt pretty darn lost and that this was a permanent loss in my life that I could not do anything about. And the thing that also just so uh, stands out to me is the dehumanizing quality. I I do understand they were saying, Julie, you know, but it seems pretty kind of pro forma. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel as if they're recognizing what's actually, what the obvious effect of that experience would be on a person. I know. And, uh, and yet, I believe that still... It's, I think it goes on less, but it still does go on. Because I'm part of the Little People of America, for instance, so there are a lot of children who are being raised in, in this medical environment that when I hear some of the things that are said and still a lot of these negative labels being used, I think, mm, we, we still have a ways to go. <laughs> that was going to be my next question, if, whether you felt it had changed. And it I sounds do think like- it's better. It's certainly better. It's just that um, there is still a sense that we are our bodies. And so if something goes awry with our bodies or, or even goes awry in our life, that it's an indication that there's something wrong with us and instead of that there's, there's something untouchable and, and um, infinite within us, eternal, and that part of us is where we need to focus when the going gets tough and to realize that we're not, as we go through the grief and, and we have to do that and experience the pain of it and the loss and feeling is so important, but there is relief um, on the other side of that. And I just feel in the medical world there's this sense of, permanency about a physical condition like mine 
and, and certainly it can't be cured in the in the technical sense, but it can be healed, and that's a revelation to me because of what I was taught as a child, and and in yes. grief, you know, and in loss, that somehow because the person is gone, that that the relationship can't heal, and that we can't move on, and. There's just so much evidence that we can, thank goodness. That we can, for sure, yeah. for sure. And I know you were also pretty severely bullied um, yeah. as a result of being different, which mm. does still definitely go on. There's a little more uh, uh, attention to it on some levels. But did you? do you feel you had to – what did you do to forgive? Because towards the end of the book, I felt that that sense of having laid down – um, the injury, mm. and and I connect that with forgiveness. Yeah, uh, does that connect for you as well? Yes, and you know what's amazing is that the way I forgave was to realize how how similar I was to the bullies when I recognized and honored the pain that I'd been through. I began to see it in everyone. And when I looked back on those, they're mostly boys, I started to recognize the situations they were in, that mm-hmm. although on the outside it looked like they had power and they were, you know, good with their words and sarcastic and they had people following them and all these trappings of what looked cool, really on the inside they were desperate and insecure and they were feeling as powerless as I was but they went about it by lashing out and often boys unfortunately um, their aggression goes outward whereas mine went inward I sort of punished myself I was cruel to myself but when I really looked at us side by side and began to realize that our humanity is a shared experience it's very universal I how could I hate them and how could I not forgive them? That would be poisoning myself for the rest of my life. And why would I choose that? It would be continuing to believe what they said was true. And essentially, when I was put down, when anybody is put down, if we agree with it, which is where we start to fall apart, and we agree that we're not worthwhile, which I did, and I agreed that I looked freakish and that I didn't fit in. I was a reject. I thought all that was true. So it came back to me in the mirror of them. And um, had I had anybody at that time who could have explained that to me to help me see that these Others were also struggling. Um, they needed help. They didn't need punishment. We all needed help. Mm-hmm. And we didn't need just someone saying, oh, zero tolerance. It really, it just needs much more fleshing out than that. It's, it's classic sort of relationship dynamics of the, the mirror of each other. We, we lash out at what we don't like in ourselves. And the longer I looked at that and found compassion for myself, the more I felt compassion for them, and I could really see that forgiving them was forgiving me. It was just a win-win all around. And so it sounds as if there's some way that taking on uh, your your own demons and mm. and forgiving your humanness naturally sort of led to seeing that in them. 
It does. Did I? Yes. Yes, and I wouldn't. I didn't even know. I think that that was the outcome, but that does happen naturally when we allow ourselves to really feel the depth of what it's like to live in this little often prison of a body and this darkness of the world and to just embrace it as the adventure that it is, suddenly when that feeling is allowed to move and I no longer held on to it like some sort of battle wound that if I exposed it, I would be attacked. Instead, I found this strength in in looking at my weaknesses, in recognizing them as human, in seeing them in others. I didn't feel alone anymore. It was miraculous because I'd, I'd felt so different, and then I realized, oh, I'm actually really a lot like everybody else. I just don't look the part, but that's okay. You know, I really and, and you're paying more attention. Yeah, yeah. It's what could, we see with our inner eyes. Of, yeah, yeah. I I really resonate with your what you're saying about um, bullies too, in the sense that that's pain talking. Yeah, it is. And, and uh, maybe the downside of there mo- being more attention to to the bullying is that, in a sense, the bullies are being ostracized. Right, right. Uh, it's, yeah, both the victim tends- and the supposed victor, um, neither of those labels really work because uh, everyone is, is somewhat victimized by their own life and their inability to see what's great about them and what's remarkable, what's unique, what's the same. And so we just need that general support and connection. Bullies need it just as those who are bullied. It, it's, it's important to be um, compassionate for both sides. When you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, this is a little bit of a uh, something to the side of what we're talking about, but um, this whole thing of of self criticism and pain, you know, we want to think we can have control over things, and <laughs> and in a sense, I I um, I think we'd rather think it's our fault than think we don't have any control over it. Sometimes, mm. uh, d- does that seem true in your um, in your experience too? And how did you how did you let that go? That idea of um, it's my fault, you know? Mm, yeah, because there am. is an upside to that. If it's my fault, maybe I can change it, and it won't happen anymore. Or oh, so true. And and I'm a recovering control freak, so I completely <laughs> relate when you say, you know, we can't control. There's a lot of things we can't control, and I felt out of control because it seemed like the outer world knew something about me that I didn't know, but. Um, um trying to trying to take responsibility or saying it's my fault and and falling into despair over that is part of the journey i think but also taking on that fault quote unquote is also a path toward realizing wow well if i had anything to do with this then i also can do something to change it and that's where the responsibility comes in, the ability to respond in a new way, to see that the ways the world was reacting to me might be a reflection of how I see myself. And so maybe I could use that as a way to grow and to learn and evolve instead of that, oh, they all hate me. 
They, they all reject me. Well, you know, they're busy questioning their own worth, so they're not yes. really a reliable source. <laughs> right. so it's within us where the, the, there remains that love and that the soul of us, that abiding sense of peace. Mm-hmm. That tapping into that and finding that is our responsibility. It's always in our control. Outer circumstances, not so much, but the inner ones of of taking the outer and looking at it as a metaphor for what needs to change within ourselves. That's been so empowering to me, so liberating to Mm -hmm. think, oh, okay, it doesn't have to be my fault. It can be my responsibility to change. That's exciting. Yes. Yes, it is. It is unbelievably time for another break. (laughs) When we come back, let's talk about your life now and how all this has uh, uh, turned out in their current, I know we're always changing and growing, but Mm -hmm. I have a feeling where you are now, um, so different from those places. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that. And in the meantime, uh, you can go to Julie Bon Genovese's website, www. Dot nothing short of joy dot com. And just to reach me, go to the Good Grief homepage at Voice America. See you when we get back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune into Lotus Radio, Nourishing Life with Jane Dabu. Every week for everything you need to take personal responsibility in your quest for optimal health. We'll discuss topics pertaining to alternative medicine, as well as answer your questions about diseases, health, mental, and emotional conditions, and spirituality. Our guest experts include researchers, medical professionals, and advocates. Lotus Radio can be heard live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. And please let me know how the show is affecting you. I'd, I'd love to hear from some of you listeners out there uh, how you're responding. I'm here with Julie Bon Genovese, and I've been talking about how her dwarfism and degenerate arthritis created a childhood of medical trauma and bullying and how she healed from that to find a life of incredible joy which I can feel talking to you by the way <laughs> thank you um, I was really interested in uh, a, a kind of um, a, something poked out from the book which is that the way you chose to cope Mm-hmm. was to look like everything was okay, that you were <laughs> happy, you know, that your facade was kind of, oh, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that is actually who you are. Yeah. You know, that somehow you've grown to the place where that is the total truth. Yeah, you know, I, was, I was blind to it then. Um, I And I remember being at the doctors in Boston early on, and I heard a doctor say to my parents, well, she seems very well-adjusted. Mm. And it's almost like I can see, like, lights and glitter around that word, well-adjusted. It became my goal. It, it became this uh, thing I was reaching and stretching to be. The doctor said it was a good thing. He didn't say, you know, she's wonderful or she's, a, she's well-adjusted. And I could feel that he thought that was impressive. And so that became this act. It, not that I was well-adjusted, but that I look that way. And so I learned how to deny how I felt and how to just smack a brave face on and a smile, and that that was received well. So it sort of was reinforced that it was a good thing. And when everything began to really crumble in my 20s, and I I found a therapist, thank goodness, because I didn't know what to do as that facade and that mask and pretenses were really being questioned by the inner grief and the rage and the, the fear that was really dominating my life, and I wasn't expressing it. So in therapy, it really helped me, and the the books that I found in the self-help bookstore just showed me that the expression of it was vital, and that, and especially the authors that I read who talked about finding their true self and waking up to their true self as a result of trauma or darkness, and that there was this hope, and the hope gave me possibilities and, and the belief that there was more to me and that I didn't have to fake it. And in not wanting to fake it, I, I started to find the real thing. So it's just an odd, um, I think that many of us learn how to put on masks and, and wear that, that pretense initially, but then it becomes incredibly painful and uncomfortable and letting that fall away is, is hard and um, full of grief 
because we've betrayed ourselves, but yes. also really important because as soon as the emotion is allowed its course, I could start to feel the truth of the joy that I was trying to act out but didn't actually feel. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I have the... I have the idea that we use as a defense what comes kind of naturally, but then when there's all that fear in there, it sort of turns upside down. You know, it became yes. this, this max mask thing instead of a true expression of joy. But right, it, and I really doubted myself that I even knew what that was for yes. for years because there were moments of joy, and there were not just moments; there were times of connection and alignment with who I was. When I did my artwork, I, I was there. Sometimes when I was with my family or my friends, I knew love and I knew joy. So it wasn't completely foreign, and it never is because it is our true nature, but it did get, you know, it got blocked up for many years, and, and I thought that the pretending would help me, and in fact it just further separated me from the world who were also wearing their masks. And as soon as I find, as soon as I'm more real and want to be authentic with someone, then they, they also feel they can drop anything that blocks who they really are and just be, just be real as well. That's pretty powerful, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> to, to feel as if your relationship with yourself actually opens that potentially in many other people. Right, and that, I think that's the truth of it, that what we do to heal ourselves just ripples out endlessly, sometimes in ways we'll probably never know. You might never know how this show touches someone's life, and, and I may never know how my book might touch someone, but it doesn't even matter, because if we are true to our own message and to what our soul came to express or learn, then that work just keeps transforming. It just keeps moving, and then it comes back around. And I've seen so many full circles, and I know you have too, in Absolutely. our lives where, you know, something beautiful comes back to us, and we go, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> but I <laughs> yes. think it is that resonance, because we're all essentially the same family, you know, one human race, and so what we do for ourselves or for each other, we do for the whole. I'd love to hear how that's showing itself in your life currently, you know, what you're doing with your life that um, has come out of this transformation that is clear you've you've undergone. <laughs> well, being out on stage and, and speaking publicly has probably been the most challenging and the most enlightening for me because when my book was accepted for publication and I was thrilled and on the same day that I signed my contract I practically you know had a panic attack because mm -hmm. suddenly the reality that my secrets and skeletons and that's all I could see at the moment not my transformation would be out would be out. <laughs> and I, I Everyone's going to know. <laughs> Everybody's going to know how totally screwed up I am. And that was just terrifying. And then the understanding that it wasn't just going to be published. I would need to promote. I would need to be out there signing books on stage uh, has really been, wow, uh, 
just rip my skin off and, you know, let everybody see my nakedness. Um, but that's been an incredible gift to survive and realize, wow, people are accepting of who I truly am, not what I want them to see necessarily, not the squeaky clean smile or image, but the truth of it and that it's all good. It's all good grief because the <laughs> feeling of it, the realness, the authenticity of who we are is the shared part. It makes us feel we're not alone. It, it reminds us that in our humanness exists this divinity that's just waiting for us, and it's still okay to be weak and flawed. And, and when we admit it, strangely, paradoxically, we get stronger. That's crazy, but it's the truth. And, and when I step out on stage, and I am five minutes before that, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I don't want to go out there. This is crazy. And then I start speaking, and I can feel a connection with faces, with the room. Something changes, and something continues to heal inside of me. Every time I have to face that fear I have more courage the next time. And sometimes it's only a little more, and I think, oh, I'm not making progress. What's wrong with me? But sometimes it's a significant jump. And I realize, wow, my husband said to me the other day, I was feeling down, and he said, you know, think about who you were just four years ago before your book came out, and you wouldn't have dreamed of going out on stage and talking about the things that you thought were the most shameful about you. And I thought, yeah, I mean, I am very different as a result of the work that this book sort of threw me into. And mm-hmm. the book was the healing, that, that creative outpouring and that desperation to express myself and to be of help to anyone else in that situation. It's just come back to heal me. So whatever we give, you know, we get to keep. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, I love that, the way you just said that. And and where that comes from, that, uh, of course, I'm, I'm feeling what you're saying extremely personally because I've spent 30 years in a little office with one or two people, <laughs> and I am suddenly um, very much in the public. Yes. In a way I never have been. And in advance, I was kind of afraid of that. And now it's kind of 99% um, pure joy and a lot coming towards me and just wonderful. 1% is kind of scary. But uh, I think that's what you're talking about, that we have to walk past that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I talked with with a teacher of mine before I did it. And he said, you know, that's just the price. Is the price of admission to this human? Just the price, you know. You got to pay it to to get in. (laughs) Wow, I I know what you're talking about for sure. Yeah, such a wonderful uh, thing to find that you actually can do it, and that not just bad stuff comes. Right. Yeah, because for me, being seen as a child was always a difficult you know, prospect, I, something might happen. I was extremely vigilant when I was out in the public. Someone might taunt me, ask a question I can't answer, laugh at me, uh, make other people feel uncomfortable. And to then be seen now 
And to have that old, you know, that childhood stuff flare up sometimes and that little girl in me going, run, you know, do not let them see you sweat. Don't let them see you at all. That still emerges. And I and I'll beat myself up over it and then I'll go, oh, yeah, here we go again. It's just sort of these these old things that we have to revisit to because I'm so hard on myself. I just need to keep on forgiving, keep on recognizing that none of this is, you know, mine to bear alone. This is just, this is the human journey and it's okay. (laughs) I'm in good company. (laughs) Learning to say, hello, old friend. Don't worry, we'll get through this. (laughs) They're there. You made it many, many times before. You know, we keep getting ourselves up off the floor and, and face a little more of what's difficult and then find a little more of the magic. Absolutely. It's getting to be time to leave this conversation. I hope we'll have others in our lifetime because mm, I enjoyed talking with you so much. Would you read that last portion of the book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is that um, I have two sons, and uh, this was, <laughs> I had a whistle bat that I used to use. I believe it started in my early 20s. When I went to therapy, I would take the bat and hit my bed when I was just so distraught and angry, and almost always the anger would turn to tears. And um, I beat that bat up. I I don't even know how long I used it, but it was a long time. Um, And this was years later. My sons uh, were six and two. And um, and here's the excerpt. Uh, One morning... I found Spence and Kyler happily rummaging in my closet. Suddenly, Spencer emerged triumphant, holding a dented yellow whistle bat. The sight of it made me laugh. Mommy, can we play with it? He asked excitedly. Sure, I said. I don't need it anymore. It had been a long time since I'd madly mauled my bed with that old bat. The raging fear, which had once dictated my world, had been released. Years ago, I'd have thought that impossible. It shows how much I knew. Those who I thought were my enemies became allies. Pain moved toward healing. Hate turned to love. Fear to joy. I'd once judged my life as inadequate. But from my soul's perspective, it had always been magnificent. It turns out that in the great celestial card game, there's no such thing as a bad hand. The full circles of life had brought me home. Being born different was not a curse in the end. It was magic. Oh, that's such a beautiful place for us to end this conversation. And I just want to thank you for it. I've, I've um, gotten so much talking with you today. Aw, thank you, Cheryl. As soon as we connected, I said, Ooh, this is a soul sister. I know her. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, I'm going to have a guest. His name is Frank Ostaseski. He's a pioneer in contemplative end-of-life care, co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, the first Buddhist hospice in America, also created the Meta Institute to provide broad-based education on mindful and compassionate end-of-life care. And he's been featured in numerous national and international venues with Bill Moyers, with the Dalai Lama. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. Don't forget to go to the Good Grief homepage to find me, and I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.